Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while living with the unique stressors of this strange and potent time. My name is Brett, and it's my pleasure to be your host on this journey. Today's episode is all about breathing. Our guest, Robin Rothenberg, is an internationally respected yoga therapist specializing in supporting people with respiratory, immune, and structural imbalances to regain their health through the combined tools of yoga and therapeutic breathing practices. She's also the author of the landmark book, Restoring Prana, a guide to pranayama and healing through the breath. In it, she combines the ancient wisdom of yogic breath practices with the most up-to-date science of respiratory physiology. In this episode, we'll be talking about what makes breathing either functional or dysfunctional. Using Robin's book as a model, we investigate the myths and misconceptions of pranayama and draw a detailed map on how we can return back to the most optimized breathing patterns for health and spiritual insight. Robin was also kind enough to walk us through a guided practice, which really emphasizes the conversation much more vividly. So if this is something that lights you up, please consider checking out her book and online offerings over on EssentialYogaTherapy.com. She actually has a new Restore Your Prana certification course beginning on October 29th for those of you who really want to take the plunge. And lastly, if you want to support this show, the biggest thing you can do is just follow what inspires you from these episodes and consider incorporating them into your life. I really do make this show in hopes that the listeners can find a practice or a view that helps them transform uh, into a more ease-filled version of themselves. So if something really resonates with you, give it a go and then let me know. Send me an email, leave a comment. Uh, I'd love to hear if one of these has provided you with a sense of ground and deeper embodiment. Beyond that, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Money does make the world go round and it helps me keep the lights on. So each of you who has already signed up, thank you so much. Genuinely, I make this show out of passion and I would love to continue making this show and have it really support me as I support you. Beyond that, if you don't have the money, that's okay. You can subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Instagram, and like us on Facebook, uh, 21st Century Vitalism, for all of those uh, more people interacting with the stuff, more likelihood of me getting some really cool guests like today's. Either way, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it and love making this show for you. As for the rest of this episode, without further ado, please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and open your heart for Robin Rothenberg. So we are now live. Robin, hello, and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. I just want to start by saying thank you so much for giving me some of your time. Uh, it's really an honor to have you on the show. How are we today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Brett, for inviting me and being so enthusiastic about this topic. Yeah. So I was just telling you before we started recording, you were referred to me from a previous guest, uh, Mary Bond, who is someone I look up to in the movement therapy world and she recommended your book to me um restoring prana which i have right by my hand here uh, i bought it uh pretty much right after she mentioned it because it's really in my wheelhouse 
about halfway through right now and wow um, it is everything that I was looking for as a massage therapist wanting to get into the world of breath uh, and I'm just curious because you have such a, a deep understanding of both the east and the west's approach to the breath so I'm curious uh, with you as a yoga therapist what was it that got you to focus on this specific uh, subject within the world of yoga so um, thank you for that question. Um, it's, it's really has everything to do with um, my life journey. Um, I always had problems with um, my respiratory system. Um, I had chronic health issues as a child, um, pneumonia when I was four, chronic ear infections, um, which are all part of the respiratory system, um, throat infections, tonsillitis, my adenoids were taken out when I was four. Unfortunately, they did not take my tonsils out at the time. That came later. Um, and in between, lots and lots of antibiotics um, and uh, cultivated because of the chronicity of the infections, um, uh, I developed a chronic cough that my parents would try to subdued with Phenergan, with codeine, which was basically like how I got through my adolescence. Mm -hmm. um, they would just, you know, spoon it in and send me <laughs> off to school because I didn't have a fever and I wasn't really sick, but I had this horrible croupy cough. Um, and that sounded awful, but there was nothing, like nobody thought to do anything about it. I mean, now I realize there were a lot of things that could be done about it. My parents would have done things had they known, but nobody was really talking about it and nobody even mentioned asthma, um, but likely I probably should have seen somebody about it and perhaps have been given an inhaler or something. Um, so when I, when I ventured into the world of yoga, which I did kind of accidentally, um, I really didn't know that it had anything to do with breathing. I was looking for ways to feel better, you know, sort of on the physical. I was looking for a physical um, uh, strengthening, stretching, kind of feel better in my structural body. Um, and then when the world of pranayama, the yoga teachings about breath came forward and I started playing with them, I immediately had an affinity towards them and I wanted more. And the teachers that I studied with originally had a, I mean, the whole system was rather rigid, which seems kind of oxymoronish for yoga, but there are some very rigid yoga systems, and I was immersed in one of them. And so um, it wasn't very satisfying, but I was always interested in more pranayama. One of my colleagues said, you know, the thing about you, Robin, is like, you're the only person I know who actually practices pranayama. I'm like, but I, I want to like, I want to do something to help myself breathe better. And so when I discovered Vini Yoga, which is a very breath centric practice and started studying um, in that tradition and yoga therapy with Gary Kraftsaw, who, who was very knowledgeable about the breath and started doing deeper breathing practices, I immediately felt like I was swimming in the, in the ocean of where I had, where I belonged. And, um, and so I, I went deep into the pranayama practices with that and, and through his influence. Unfortunately, um, some of those practices for me and where I was coming from and also the confluence of events in my life where I was teaching, starting to teach 
hours and hours for days on end. And I had a new little grandchild that I was talking, singing, cooing to all the time. And I was just constantly putting out a lot of breath, big breath. Um, my coughing, which had really subsided, returned, and a lot of my symptoms from earlier in my life with the chronic fatigue and things like that returned. And I knew it was related to my breath, but I couldn't figure out what to do about it. And none of the pranayama practices that I had learned were helpful. In fact, a lot of them seemed to make it worse. And I would just, I was, I mean, I literally, I got a respiratory infection and I literally didn't stop coughing for three months. I couldn't sleep. I was up all night. And I was doing all kinds of pranayamas trying to stop the bronchial spasms. I mean, I desperately needed an inhaler and finally went to my naturopath and she prescribed one and said, you have asthma, like this really, it's bad. Um, and so it was at that point that I called upon a, a longtime student of mine who had really eradicated her asthma tremendously through this non-yoga technique called Buteco breathing. And that took me into the world of respiratory physiology and science and what is functional breathing and what is dysfunctional breathing. And so then my head was swirling because I started doing these practices from this non-yoga perspective. And you have to understand, I've been studying and teaching yoga and yoga therapy for 30 years at this point. So I was like a believer in like yoga had always supported my health and well-being and then suddenly it didn't and I felt kind of betrayed and then I started doing this other kind of breathing that was the opposite of what I had learned in yoga right and I'm like how is this possible how did the yogis get it wrong right and then I went back to the teachings I just took you know because I have this kind of sciencey brainiac mind so it's like wait a minute what do the teachings really say about pranayama? And so then I did this deep dive back into the Yoga Sutras and the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and Granta Samhita and a lot of the, the ancient texts that really look like not, not, I don't want to say not listening to my teachers, but kind of in my mind, it's like going over, you know, like going back in time. And what I found was that there was congruence between the original way in which pranayama was presented and what I was learning and experiencing, experiencing with Buteco, which was the less I breathed, the better I felt, like my cough eradicated within, like in, in one week, 75%, I was coughing less. And my energy came back and my appetite regulated and I started feeling like I could you know be active physically active again and I wasn't breathless all the time and yawning all the time and all these things and when I learned about the physiology all of it made sense and it all matched up with not breathing mm. and then you know the teachings also said pranayama is synonymous with kumbhaka and kumbhaka are the phases of the breath there's four phases of the breath inhale and exhale are what we're most familiar with but in between there's the space between inhale and exhale and the space between exhale and inhale those spaces are really synonymous with pranayama it's about increasing your capacity to not breathe to retain after inhale or suspend after exhale without any sense of distress that is an indication that you're 
that your physiology is balanced. And it's also conducive to those deeper states of inner quiet and the concentration of mind and the vitality that is required for, you know, states uh, like samadhi, not the ultimate, you know, unitive consciousness that is the goal of yoga. So uh, that was a long way around, but I don't know how to tell that story short because it really was a journey. It has been a journey and I do chronicle it in the book, Um, but it, it was a huge, uh, ah, it was like coming home to find out that yoga really, like the yogis really understood this and then something got lost in the translation. That's, you know, people say, well, how come if that's the original teachings on pranayama, how did we get into all of this (sighs) yoga classes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I I can't say because I wasn't part of that movement but what I can say is something got lost in the translation because pranayama means to retain prana. Do you want to like fill your vessel and be able to hold that prana in so you have vital energy, prana being that life force and vit- sense of vitality. So you don't want to be leaking it all the time. And I got to tell you, is a big leakage of prana. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things that in our culture is so synonymous with relaxation. Like, all right, just yeah. someone's freaking out. Hey, take a deep breath. You know, and I, that's I, I've been encouraging my clients as a massage therapist to start each session with some deep breaths as well. So what you're saying is that that's actually the opposite of what we're... But isn't there like something about it that feels good? I mean, I feel like in that moment when I'm like, ah, there's something about yes. that that it feels like you're kind of just deflating a little bit yes so yeah how how does that work yeah so a couple of things with that um there's the every once in a while taking a deep breath to just release tension that deep sigh which is very can be very healthy and beneficial then there's relying on to release tension which creates actually a habitual pattern that throws literally throws our chemical balance off like throws our oxygen and co2 levels off in relationship to one another and over the long term what happens is that we feel an urge and a need to breathe heavier and deeper and take those big deep sighing breaths or big yawns more and more and more and more and in doing that, we throw our chemistry off more and more and more. And it's like it wags the tail and gets into a very, very vicious cycle. Um, so there's, there is that idea, okay, of like, ah, taking a deep breath and then you feel more relaxed or you see somebody do that. It's like, oh, now they're more relaxed than when they were all stressed out. Now I'm going to give you a couple of different other scenarios to consider as well to just put it in like start to maybe even if nothing else confuse you a little so you have to go ponder and go hmm so let's say you're at a movie theater and a woman comes and sits next to you and she's like oh oh like this now are you going to think oh that woman is just so chill and relaxed you're going to be like oh my god 
do you need me to call somebody? Are you okay? Right? Like, what is going to be your response to all of her big, deep breathing? Yeah, that's going to be concerned. <laughs> going to be concerned. Okay, so that's to just hold that in mind. Then, let's say you, and I don't know, I mean, you look like you're pretty fit. You know, I'm pretty fit. However, if either of us went for a, a brisk walk up a big hill with somebody who was an Olympic athlete, who would get breathless first? I'm going to guess, yeah, guess me, probably. <laughs> yeah. So breathlessness, right, mm -hmm. is equal to or correlated with, associated with lack of aerobic fitness, right? Mm -hmm. People who are really good athletes can run far and hard vigorously and not feel breathless. So there is something about the capacity to not feel like you need to be huffing and puffing all the time that is actually indicative of health. Yeah. And yet what we're teaching people often to do is to breathe in ways that are correlated with lack of health. So it turns out that people with cardiovascular disease, people who have anxiety, people who have asthma, people who talk for a living, um, <laughs> people like teachers, right, or receptionists or sales salesmen, um, th these people all breathe harder and faster than normal breath rates. And there actually is like a, a range. It's like we think of there's a range of health for blood pressure to be, right? Like you want to mm -hmm. be somewhere around 120 over 80, something like that, right? Yeah. starts to go way up and you worry. starts to go too far down, you worry, right? There's, there's a range. There's a range for the, you know, healthy levels of carbon dioxide in our system. And I know when people think about breathing, they mostly, if they think about a gas that's involved in breathing, they mostly think about oxygen. But there's some interesting facts about oxygen that don't match people's hyper concern about, am I getting enough oxygen? Um, but really and truly, the internal mechanism in our in our brain, in our brainstem, the medulla oblongata that uh, regulates our autonomic nervous system, which is blood pressure and heart rate and breath rate and volume, um, is keenly sensitized to drops and, 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 and raises in carbon dioxide levels. And the, there's many reasons for that. Um, a couple of them have to do with the fact that carbon dioxide is something that we can produce, we do produce, and we regulate the amount of it internally. So we have control over it. And it has everything to do with how much we breathe. Like we can, by breathing more, we off-gas more CO2, and by breathing less, we off-gas less CO2. By moving more, we produce more CO2, and by moving less, we produce less CO2. CO2 is directly related to our capacity to utilize oxygen. Like we can take breath, we can take oxygen in. I live in Seattle right now. The air quality is good, although I hear the fires and the smoke are on their way. But right now, air quality is good and we're at sea level. So 21% of the air here is made up of oxygen. Most is made up of nitrogen. 
So when we're breathing, when we're taking a breath in, only a good breath at sea level, a good air quality place, right? It's only 21% oxygen, and we breathe out 16% oxygen. So we only need, you know, it's not much. I always say I'm not great at math, but I can tell you that's not much, like 5%, right? So I can do that math. So with that, you know, the question isn't needing more oxygen. Clearly, we don't need a ton. The question is how well are we utilizing the oxygen that we have taken in and our capacity to utilize the oxygen in our body has everything to do with how much carbon dioxide we have in our body and if our co2 levels drop down super low because let's say we were and we had some kind of traumatic injury we were in a motor vehicle accident or something and so that was highly stressful and then we injured our back and so we can't go and play pickleball three, four times a week, like some of us like to do, or right, or do yoga, or like whatever our physical, our favorite physical things to do, or take long walks, or whatever, we can't, we're not able to be physically active, so that means we're not producing as much CO2, and then we're stressed out, because now we've got all these medical bills, and we're running from one doctor to another, and then to the chiropractor, and the acupuncturist, and the massage therapist, and right, and we're trying to figure out how to resolve this problem, we're worrying, like, you know, we're not sleeping well at night, because we're so stressed out and because it's painful every time we turn over like all of these things we're breathing harder and faster because of the anxiety so we're off gassing more co2 we're moving less and what happens is our chemistry gets thrown off and that vicious cycle starts to happen we're breathing more we're breathing harder and then our system shifts and then it's requiring us to breathe more and harder and the harder and more we breathe the more stressed out we feel and the more our mind tries to make sense of this physiologic sense of not okayness, so it starts telling stories. You know how the mind is really good at telling stories? Right? So then the stories embellish and match the state of anxiety, and then that feeds the state of anxiety, and around and around we go, and we just keep breathing harder and faster, and we get farther and farther away from homeostasis. And it creates what's known as an allostatic load on our system, where our body starts to adapt to the you know like start like our world is skewed but we start just shifting our gaze so that we're looking at it from over here and then that starts to feel normal but it's really not and the yeah. problem is is that it's much harder to get back to center to actually train the body to breathe less and to be okay with more and more tolerance to CO2 levels. Like the coming back to center is actually quite hard to do. It's a challenging practice. It's much easier to breathe more than it is to breathe less. It's like going on an air diet and nobody really likes to go on any kind of diet, but it feels even more challenging to go on an air diet than a food diet because there's such a sense of like, I'm going to die if I don't breathe more, right? Like, there's a felt sense of, I need, I've been used to breathing this much, and now you're telling me to breathe this much, and it feels like there's not enough oxygen to go around. There's plenty of oxygen. It's just our body has become accustomed to not having as much carbon dioxide on board, and we've got to reacclimate ourselves to that, um, I mean, I know that this probably sounds complex, and it is. It's way more complex. I'm giving you the physiology, respiratory physiology light. 
Um, but it's all tied with pH. So it really is a matter of life or death for those of you that know about pH. We have a very narrow window that is called health and well-being when it comes to our acid alkaline balance between 7.35 and 7.45 on a 0 to 14 scale. And if we move just a little bit to the right or left, we start to be out of balance. And if we get to 6 or 8, we're dead. So it's a very small margin and actually our breathing and our CO2 levels are the way, the most immediate way that our body regulates and manages pH. Um, and that's because CO2 is an acid, but it's a shape changer, chemical shape changer in our body. So it doesn't always stay at the same level of acidity. So it can go more alkaline or more acidic depending on our body's needs. So it is an incredibly potent, powerful, and necessary, necessary, vital um, chemical in our system, and we want to maintain it in its right balance. And when we do that, we feel better. Every system in the body functions better when our CO2 levels are where they're supposed to be. And we feel oxygenated, our body, you know, we feel like we have energy and our brain is clear and, you know, we, you know, we, we get up in the morning and feel perky and we go to sleep at night and feel tired and sleep well and digest well and every other system works better. Mm. Yeah, you know, as I've been reading this book and, you know, I'm immersing myself in this material, uh, yeah. You know, it's made me really, really acutely aware of my own breathing, and I'm recognizing how much I'm sighing, how much I'm yawning, and it yeah. is making me uncomfortable knowing the science behind why I'm doing that. But there is something about it that I, I, you you talk about, like the comfortable pause, like in between the inhale and the exhale, and mine is like between six uh, between the exhale and the inhale. Oh, really yeah, different. Yeah, yeah. There's a yes. different chemical makeup yeah. with the in hold after inhale versus the hold after exhale. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But you know, I am recognizing that mine is it's like six seconds. Like I am already like gasping. Got some work to do, Brad. <laughs> yeah. I know. So, and I've also recognized that I mouth breathe a lot, which is another thing we can talk about in a little bit here. But so you, you've stumbled across this. It wasn't through the pranayama. It's reinforced by that. But it was the buteco breathing. And this is something that I find to be really fascinating because I found out about it last year when I read James Nestor's book, Breathe. But it was something that just kind of came and went in the depth of that book. Uh, but then it resurfaced while reading yours. And it's something that I'm immediately fascinated with. So what yeah. was your journey like when you started exploring that and taking that more seriously? And I guess really the question is, how do we retrain our breathing when it's so ingrained? Yeah. Um, I always say there's two ingredients necessary to do this breath retraining work. One is patience because there's no fast way to transform something that is so tied. Literally, if you think about like on a very, very primal level, like life or death, pH, like we're shifting, you're asking your system to acclimate um, around whether it's going to read that you're alive or dead, right? It's not going to just change because you change the way you breathe for five minutes or 20 minutes, right? Like there's, there's a consistency over time. This is, I'm quoting Sutra 112. 
from potentially Yoga Sutra. Abhyasa Vairagyam Tanya Rodaha, like consistent practice uninterrupted over a long period of time. That's the word Abhyasa means all of that, one word, much more efficient language. And then Vairagyam is without attachment. Like you just show up and you do it. It doesn't matter if you like it or you don't like it or you want to or you don't. You just, you know, like you, the commitment is there. You show up, you do it um, because you do it. That's that's how you get to the end point, health and well-being or the state of samadhi or your breath changing. So patience required and commitment. And then the other is a sense of humor, like <laughs> honest to God. Like, yeah. it's so hard. I would literally, because I, you know, I'm a writer and I have a good imagination. And so, you know, like I would, I mean, I felt like I, like everything I just said, like, oh my God, I cannot not breathe like this. Like I'm going to die, you know? And I'd go into this whole story and then I'd be like, well, isn't that interesting, Robin? Apparently you're getting enough oxygen to your brain to make up this whole fiction <laughs> right about how you're going to die if you keep breathing like this but apparently your brain's still working so you're still getting oxygen to it and you're alive so maybe this is just outside your comfort zone but that doesn't mean it's the end of your life it just means it's a little uncomfortable and that's part of the process so you talk about the big size and the yawns and it's kind of like if you're going on, you're doing like portion control diet. And then you're like, yeah, I had just a little bit of everything. That was good. But now I'm going to have a little bit more mashed potatoes. It's always the potatoes. <laughs> right? Right? Who doesn't like a second helping of mashed potatoes? But when you're sighing or yawning, it's like that. And, mm. you know, the, the relief, it's like a... A glass of wine or even whatever, a shot of whiskey or whatever, you know, like once in a while, no big deal. Like, fine, it takes the edge off. You had a stressful day or you're out celebrating. No problem there, right? But if you're, every time you get a little stressed, you're reaching for whatever it is, the wine or the, you know, drawing or what, you know, right? Like, you're you're engaging in those activities in a way that is habituated, like, so you become less tolerant to stress because you're constantly like, oh, it's edgy. I need to do something to smooth it out, make myself feel more comfortable. Breathing can be like that. It can be addictive. Like the more you breathe, the more you're going to feel like you have to breathe. And the only way to break that pattern is to actually discipline yourself consistently to breathe less, portion control. Yeah. To keep your mouth closed, one. To slow the breath down and bring it down, abdominal diaphragmatic, and we can talk about that, and you know it's on my list of things to talk about, get it out of chest breathing. And then to lighten it up, titrate it back. You can start mm-hmm. 10%, 15%, right? So it's a little bit less, and you want to find that edge point where it's like you want that second helping a mashed potatoes, or you want to go to the dessert table at the buffet, and you're choosing not to. And there's that craving. You can feel the craving. And then a lot of it is, what do you tell yourself? What's the story you're telling yourself? If I don't have that chocolate chip cookie, I'm going to die. If I don't take a big breath, I'm going to die. And then like, is it true? You can do a little Byron Katie there. Like, is 
objectively true? Is it objectively true? Right, right? Or is this just a story I'm telling myself so that I can hurry up and get myself back to comfort level? And then what's the long-term ramifications and consequences of always staying at your comfort level? For me, it was being in a state of chronic fatigue, um, brain fog, a sense of constant malaise. It wasn't, I lived that as a, as a kid and I had experienced life as a healthy person. I was not willing to go back there just because it was damn hard. I can say that right. Damn hard to change my breath pattern and to learn to be a 24 seven nose breather, take my mouth at night, right. And to breathe lighter and lesser and to go through the discomfort of suspending my breath for longer and longer periods of time and not giving into the size. I had a couple of mantras, you know, Rob, I, 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 I hear myself go and I literally say, I heard that. <laughs> that's a good right? mantra. If you can hear yourself, <laughs> if you can hear yourself breathe, you're breathing too much. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Like I, I heard that, right? Like that was too much because it was audible. Keep it silent, keep it low, keep it slow and keep it light. And um, it takes time. I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of an ambitious person (laughs) and I set goals and then I like to meet them. And um, I was determined that I was going to like get my CO2 levels, get my tolerance back up to normal levels. Like you, I was, I could barely suspend my breath. My comfortable pause was 11 when I started, Mm -hmm. um, which I was like, uh, 11. That's not bad considering how bad I felt. And then I found out that was like way sucky. Um, so anyway, it took me five months of consistent. I mean, every day I practiced for between 60 to 90 minutes. And honestly, there were, there were very few periods of time during the day that I wasn't in some OCD way thinking about my breath. Like I'd be talking to you, but I'd be like, okay, Rob, that was a big breath. Okay. You, you didn't close your mouth take a breath in through the like I'm like inside monitoring so I was really on it and until like I started in January I started feeling better right away and noticing the difference which is what took me into the deep dive and sent me to to Dublin to work with Patrick for the first time and then I studied with him multiple times after that and hosted him at my studio um, and just kept studying more and more um, but it took me until May to where my CO2 levels, like my chemistry was normal. Mm. And that was five months of like, I literally never in that first year, probably year and a half, I didn't miss a single day of practice. Wow. I just, it was, it was medicine. Like I got how it was impacting me. So I wasn't playing around with it. It's like, this is making a difference. I'm coughing less. I'm sleeping better. I wake up rested. I have a clear mind. I said to one of my dearest friends, I said, I think I've gotten smarter mm. since doing this. But I, and, 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 I, and I hold that, but it's not like my IQ increased. It's the amount of oxygen going to my brain increased. And so there wasn't the lag time between putting pieces together. Um, you know, like the book, like I always say, I couldn't have written the book if I hadn't tra- transformed my breath, but not just in terms of the content. Obviously, I wouldn't have anything to have written <laughs> about, but also my capacity to hold my focus and my concentration. I started writing the book in mm, December of 20, 
17, no, 18. And it was ready, it was published in 2019. It's a 400 page book. Yeah. yeah. You know, that it was like, but my mind, but I used my breathing throughout to keep me focused and keep me attentive and present and on track. It was my primary tool. Hmm. So for the people who might not have a relationship to yoga or consistent practice, you know, a big part of what this show is, is to try and appeal to folks who may not yeah. have any contact with consistency like this. So for somebody yeah. who is hearing this and like maybe has a subtle knowing like, wow, I'd really benefit from this, but that sounds really intense. And I don't know how I could ever commit. Like I am just not a disciplined person. Like, do they just have to want it more? Like, how do you get yourself to that point where you're really willing mm. to take this uncomfortable work on? Well, you know, motivation is a whole nother topic. Yeah. What motivates yeah. people. Um, I, when I switched from being a yoga teacher to a yoga therapist, one of the reasons, I mean, there were many reasons why I made that choice, but one of the upsides, one of the rewards of doing that was my, my clients were motivated to practice because mm. they were suffering. Yeah. People who were just like coming to do yoga for fun, it was like their recreational activity, were less motivated. But the people who had back pain were motivated. The people who were having insomnia or chronic headaches, like me, like they, it was medicine, right? So they were motivated to practice. So there is something about that, right? Um, and then as a, individually, I work with people like, find the carrot. What's the carrot for them? And then frame it around that. So there's a skill and an art as a therapist to help with that. In general, though, I would say a couple of things. The first thing is to become aware of your breathing. Like you said yourself, like, wow, this is making me aware of my breath. We breathe between 25 and 30,000 times a day. Wow. Right. So... Even as OCD, as I described myself, you know, I, it was a, like, whatever, a drop in the bucket of the number of times I was actually breathing per day. If I paid attention 50 times a day to my breath, which might seem like a lot, but if you think about how many thousand times I was breathing, you could say, well, but that was hardly any percentage of, I can't do the math, but whatever, <laughs> of the amount of time she was actually breathing, right? But it makes a difference. So any amount, so I want to say this on the level of encouragement, Becoming aware. Notice first off, do you tend to be a mouth breather? And people can be like a slack-jawed mouth breather, but you can also be more of a subtle mouth breather, right? Yeah. Mouth breathing is definitely one of the primary dysfunctional breathing patterns that are super common, and people will often say, I'm not a mouth breather. No, I don't think I'm a mouth breather. And I'm watching the mouth breathe. But they don't <laughs> think it's it's like that. But, you know, it's on a continuum. So lip sealed. That was another one of my mantras. Lip sealed, Robin. Lip sealed. Notice um, how many, you know, like your tendency to sigh or take big yawns. I mean, at the end of the day and you have a yawn or two, no big deal. But if you're like... Working right all day, yawning. That's an indication mm -hmm. of a dysfunctional breathing pattern. So just start to be like, oh, I wonder. Become curious. I think mm -hmm. curiosity is the 
is the best ingredient in life. Like, right? Mm -hmm. If you at least can be like, huh, that woman on that show said something about it. I noticed, like, I am yawning a lot, or I do sigh, like, maybe more than I need to be sighing. Like, what is that about? You know, or I hear myself breathing all the time, or I feel myself chest breathing, right? So become aware and become interested in it. For sure, people don't practice what they're not interested in. I mean, I just did the inverse, but there is a yoga sutra about that too. Like meditation, like it doesn't matter what you meditate on, fine. But what matters is that you have an affinity. Like you're not going to focus on something you don't have an interest in. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have an interest in changing your breath, for sure, you're not going to practice. Yeah. <laughs> so there has to be some hook, right? Yeah. Either like, I don't, I don't think, I, I think my breathing's fine, but I don't know, this woman said something, so I'm going to just like pay attention to it. Like at least there's, you know, there's something, there's some curiosity there. So that's the first thing. And then becoming aware, just noticing and see what it's like to hold yourself to for 10, 15 minutes at a time, only breathing through your nose and then shift it to 20 minutes and then 30 minutes, like, right. And just, and then noticing how it feels. If you are a regular mouth breather and a big breather and you seal your lips, except when you're talking and eating, and Krishnamacharya, who's a very famous yogi and yoga teacher guru from the yoga tradition, um, always said, eat less and talk less. Mm -hmm. um, just in terms of, you know, like moderation. Right? Just like only what's necessary like eat what's necessary to keep yourself vital and healthy but excess in that direction is not healthy and also say what you need to say but don't say more than you need to say mm -hmm. like make conscious choices those are the two activities well there's a few more but right and there's an appropriate place and time for all of those i'm a fan but you know like again moderation and then the rest of the time why should your mouth be open? There's no reason. No. Yeah. This is what we were born to breathe with. This is our breather. Like our eyes are our seers and our ears are our hearers. Like get your senses in order. This is, there's, the nose is extremely competent at breathing. It, there's all kinds of apparatuses, not just in our nose, but in our whole nasal cavity, which is a world inside that is full of all kinds of things that help to prepare the air for the lungs so that what we are breathing in is clean and moist and warm and in the best possible condition for us to take it in. And when we breathe through our mouth, we're breathing in cold, dry, dirty air, like really dirty air. We missed our you know, filter system and um, that's got all kinds of antimicrobial and antibacterial and antiviral components. I, when everybody's masking, I'm like, here's the first mask. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, put that mask on and already you have less opportunity to be taking in viral load into your system. <clears throat> so, nose breathing, Breathe lighter, breathe less, and then we can get into the practice of core breathing and activating more diaphragm and less accessory muscles to also calm the nervous system down. Because it's not just a 
physiologic thing. The thing with the breath is it's biomechanical, biochemical, and then it's psychological because our thoughts drive our breathing too. Because if I start thinking about, oh my God, and once this happens, and then my breath is going to get all excited, right? And then my heart rate's going to go up and then that's going to cause me to breathe harder and faster. And so we have to work it multidimensionally. It's not just one way in. Yeah. I just wanted to offer my uh, Buddhist meditation teacher, his name is David Nickturn. Uh, one of the things he says is to be mindful of your pie hole. And I just think that that is very fitting for this uh, this conversation. But the idea of yes. only utilizing your mouth when you're actually eating or breathing, it really does, or not breathing, that's the opposite, eating or talking, you know, it really mm-hmm. also accentuates the idea of really building up a sense of self-awareness as well. And that's another dimension that I think is really important for spiritual practitioners is that by taking on this work of retraining your breath, it really gives you a lot of kind of guideposts for where your mind is at at any point. So it's a really wonderful mirror if you take this as a goal, even if the goal is to just increase your self-awareness, which is uh, a really uh, important benefit as well. Absolutely. You said that very well, and it's very true. I I know many people, including myself, that um, struggled with meditation, like just sit and be quiet. You know, I'd either like doze off or like get bored or, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then doing this breathing practice and having to focus so acutely to how much I was breathing. Was it too little, too much, slow, fast? Like really monitoring every breath, which is very much a meditation on the breath. Um, and I had a great affinity for it. So it worked, right? I liked it. But I would go into these deep states of meditation. I've had students who have said, I never felt like I can meditate, but that breathing practice, I feel like I just meditated. Mm. I mean, that's what I have imagined meditation is, and I could never get there. And of course, um, in the yoga teachings, pranayama, precedes the states of meditation because they help to support the state of meditation by all of the things, all the mechanisms, the quieting and the focus and the the stilling. As the breath becomes more still, the mind becomes more still. Now, if you've ever been in a state of deep meditation, one of the things that you may have noticed is that as your mind got very still and quiet and there was more and more space between the thoughts, there might even have been a point where you think, I don't even know if I'm breathing. Like the breath becomes so fine and light because if the mind gets quiet, the breath gets quiet, they wag each other's tail. It's a very (laughs) fundamental teaching in yoga. So it's which doorway are you entering? For some people that can enter through the doorway of the mind, quiet the mind, and then the breath automatically will quiet. But for some people, the breath is doing this, the mind is not going to settle. It's not until the breath you train and support, you know, the respiratory system in calming and settling down that then the mind can settle. So of the two, for most people, not everybody, for most people coming in through the doorway of settling the breath and focusing on the breath, because it's a little bit more, it's a bigger stick to hold than the mind. The mind, you know, if you think we, breathe a lot, we think more than we breathe. Mm -hmm. So if you think 30,000 times a day, yeah, we probably think 60,000, you know, thoughts, not 100,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. Our minds are very active. 
some people more so than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like me recognizing how much I was breathing in dysfunctional ways. That was one of the things when I started practicing mindfulness was I, I, and this is kind of a common report of everybody is like, I think I'm thinking more. It's like, no, you're actually just recognizing the thoughts, which is kind of like how pervasive thinking is happening as you tune into it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a problem. The mind's job is to be busy. Yeah. It's just if we get carried away and we follow it, then it gets busier and we can train our mind like we can train our breath for to create more and more kumbaka, more and more space Mm -hmm. between the thoughts, between the breaths. Yeah, and, you know, that reminds me, I have a, a really uh, phenomenal yoga teacher as well from the Anasara tradition, and the way she teaches, she's been doing it for like 40 years herself, and it's very subtle, and that's what I've also recognized is that subtlety is advanced, whereas I think yes. the common conception is that the really big poses, the really fast, sporadic motions are the most advanced because they're difficult, but really the difficulty is maintaining like many points of awareness at once and not losing the script. And that's what I really like about the biomechanical considerations. You know, we're talking about keeping your mouth closed, breathing through your nose, and then also all the subtlety in diaphragmatic breathing, you know, like having all of those operating in tandem and then still remaining present to me, like that's the advanced, that's how you actually maintain that sense of expanding presence. For sure. For sure. Should we go into a little practice, do you think? I'd love that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we talked about, both mm-hmm. of us have mentioned this abdominal diaphragmatic breathing. So I'm just going to move my camera down a little bit so that you can see more of me. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, first of all, I want to clarify like the diaphragm, which sits underneath the rib cage and attaches to the lower ribs. And it's, you know, all the way in the back as well in the front. There's more, actually, there's more diaphragm tissue it's a muscle right on the sides and in the back than in the front and there's more blood flow in the lower lobes of the lungs than in the upper lobes of the lungs so movement of the diaphragm increases good movement of the diaphragm increases perfusion the exchange of the gases oxygen and co2 from the lung tissue into the bloodstream where it can be then delivered or deposited, right? Either from the the body to the lungs in the venous system or in the arterial system from the lungs out to our pinky fingers and toes and up to our brain. Okay, so we wanna have more movement of the diaphragm, not less, because it is our primary breathing muscle and there is no breath that is not diaphragmatic like you cannot breathe without your diaphragm if your diaphragm was paralyzed you would stop breathing they're actually i'm not going to go into it but there actually was a fascinating experiment that was done a long time ago it wouldn't be able to it wouldn't be legal to be done now but it's really super fascinating um yeah people volunteered to have their diaphragm paralyzed oh my god and they weren't they didn't ever get a call to breathe so Hmm. every breath has diaphragmatic movement the question is how much how full like you know it's a muscle like any other muscle in your body you want it to be strong and have some you know flexibility to it so the diaphragm can be weak it can be hypertonic it can be sort of like 
just chronically stressed, like people have a lot of hypertonicity in their neck and shoulders, largely, I want to say, because they just breathe. There is no re re chronic tension in the neck and shoulders, in jaw, TMJ. If the breath is not being addressed and the breathing pattern is not being addressed, I don't care how much massage, which I love, right, and how much yoga and how much whatever you do to work the muscles if you don't change your breathing pattern, I guarantee you that's driving that bus because those muscles are hypertonic. They're just chronically tense and tight. So abdominal diaphragmatic breathing is about utilizing your abdominal muscles to support good full range of movement of the rib cage, which um, supports and assists good diaphragmatic movement, right? So it's a way of conditioning the diaphragm and supporting that idea of low, slow breathing, getting out of the chest breathing pattern. And I'm a kind of an efficiency person. I like, you know, like I'm busy. People are busy, right? Mm -hmm. So if you can do more than one thing simultaneously, all the better. I'm big on core. And it turns out that the transversus abdominis, which is one of the primary core muscles that helps to stabilize and support the lower back and the sacrum, also supports that movement. It also attaches on the top edge to the rib cage and it moves in the same direction as the diaphragm when the transverse abdominis contracts and pulls the ribs in. It supports the diaphragm moving into its resting position. And then when the transverse abdominis relaxes and the ribs move out, it supports the diaphragm in moving fully into its full range and spreading the ribs out, moving down and out. So when we incorporate those movements, link them together, it helps to increase the diaphragm's range. It increases more of a parasympathetic response. It strengthens your core and it gets you out of chest breathing, paradoxical breathing, reverse breathing, which is another dysfunctional breathing pattern. And all of that is supported by nose breathing, nasal breathing and more activation of the diaphragm go together, chest breathing and mouth breathing go together. Mm. It's part of our wiring because when we're chest breathing, we might be having to call for help or run like the bejesus away from the lion. So they go together. It's stress breathing, right? As opposed to everything's chill, we're okay breathing which is nasal, low, and slow. All right, so that's a little, um, you know, sort of precursor for why we're going to do what we're going to do. So I'm going to have you um, all, and Brett, you're going to be my little guinea pig here. So hand on your chest, hand on your lower rib cage, and just take a few breaths to just notice where you feel m movement in your body. So this is everybody out there in listening land, right? You're all doing this. So... This isn't a, a spectator sport. Get on in there, get in the breath pool with us and observe your own breathing pattern. First of all, notice if automatically you go into nose breathing and you have a nice lip seal or if there's a little bit of space between your lips and can you just touch them together? Just soft touch of the lips. 
And then notice if the breath is moving up and down, you know, the direction of movement. Notice if it's moving out and in, forward, back. How would you describe it? Get to know your breath. Invite it over for tea and say hello. And notice if you feel movement happening under your upper hand or under your lower hand or some combination. Noticing if you feel uh, the breath has a steady quality to it or if you've got like a couple of short breaths and then a big breath without judgment. Like I always encourage people to just observe everything without judgment, just notice. Like if, you, if you're not able to get to know what you do, what your pattern is, how do you know how to change it, right? It's like trying to get somewhere on a GPS system without knowing what your starting point is. Okay, that's where you're going, but where are you coming from, <laughs> right? It matters. So getting to know, and you can put your hands in a variety of places, right? right? Side ribs, do you feel any movement? Do you feel any out in movement or does it just not, does it still feel up down? Does your, do you feel lots of movement in your belly but not really in your rib cage? Do you feel it in the back? You can put your hands on the back. And also right side and left side can feel different. I mean, the lobes of the lungs aren't the same because the heart sits to the left, so the left lobe is smaller. But then you might have a particular condition that means one side of your body breathes more efficiently than the other. So getting, there's so many, like you could, we could just do an hour just on that, just breath awareness. And I highly recommend it. Like, when you're sitting, when you're standing, when you're lying down, you could just, like, you're in the shower. How am I breathing? You're chopping vegetables. How am I breathing? You're sitting in the car in traffic. Like, put one hand. Like, where am I breathing? What's happened to my breathing? Okay. So now, let's have you move your hands so that you have one on your lower belly and one on your upper belly. So you still have that awareness with the upper hand of the space between the ribs. We're going to work with the space between the ribs. It's if you halfway through the book, you got to the diaphragm, which is like that's chapter six, the mm -hmm. middle of the book. It's all like there's a lot in there with the diaphragm and off the diaphragm. Anyway, and this zone of apposition, this area right here, and the movement of the diaphragm. So <clears throat> again, you might notice as you are inhaling, there's an expansion of the belly, and as you're exhaling there's an internal sort of contraction and you might feel more under your lower hand or more under your upper hand. And some of you may be like, I'm not feeling that at all. I feel like when I breathe out, my belly goes out. When I breathe in, nothing happens, much happens. Or my belly goes in when I breathe in. That's an indication of paradoxical or reverse breathing and something that I highly recommend you pay attention to and start to transform. So let's have you imagine that as you're inhaling, you're inflating, like you're inflating a balloon, like really stretch your belly, the whole, the whole of the belly as you breathe in. And then as you exhale, I'm gonna have you say shh. You don't have to put your finger here, but like shh. That's it, Brett. Keep going and going and going and going and going and see if you feel like you're 
squeezing the air out of, out of that balloon. Like, can you feel the contraction of the abdominal muscles coming in and of the rib cage? Want one low, one high, so you can feel what's happening. You want the ribs also to kind of tether in. And then close your nose, close your nose, close your mouth and inhale and expand. And then again, shh. Now I know I said no mouth breathing, don't mouth breathe. And now I'm teaching you to mouth breathe. This is training wheels where it's not, it's, it's, it's a means to an end, right? So to get the felt sense of that core engagement. Now, once you have that feeling of the abdominals, kind of like you're zipping up a tight pair of jeans that just came out of the dryer, that feeling, right? Once you get that feeling, which is the engagement of the transversus abdominis, what you want to do is go back to nose breathing, but still work with the abdominal muscles out as you inhale and in with that zip in and up as you exhale. And then if you feel like you want to go to the next level, just pause and hold that contraction for three to five seconds and see then if you can in a very relaxed and ungraspy, unurgent way, inhale. So if you feel yourself going, <gasps> okay, and going into a gasp, then only maybe a one or two second pause after exhale till you build your capacity up. So it's the expansion, chest to belly or lower ribs to pelvis on the inhale and then the zipping in and up on the exhale. And I, you know, oftentimes I'll have people use the, the shh as a mechanism to help them to find those tra that transversus abdominis. I have a number of different exercises, several of them in that chapter, chapter six and seven on how to work with the core muscles to support the movement of the rib cage in. What I want to say about this, are you still working with it? Right, yeah. you're working, your core mm -hmm. breathing, good. Is everybody out there? You can still core breathe and listen to what I'm saying, I think. You can multitask a little bit. Okay. Which is this, oftentimes people feel when they're breathless, like the problem is they're not getting enough in. And so then what they want to do is power the inhalation. And what they do when they do that is create a lot of tension and go right up into activating the chest, the shoulders, the jaw, the neck, everything up here. And what that does is actually it creates tension in the diaphragm and kind of fixes it. It doesn't actually move as wide and broad mm. and it therefore is not as efficient in its action. And then what happens on the exhale often is nothing. The belly just kind of stays flaccid and the ribs stay kind of locked in that not all the way open and not all the way closed position. And it would be like, holding your arm in like, okay, it's one thing if you're doing a bicep curl, right? And you're contracting and then you're extending and then you let it go and you go live your life. You don't walk around like this with it partially contracted and tense all the time. But we have, many of us have our diaphragms fixed and locked in that midpoint where it's neither opening all the way or closing all the way, you know, or 
drawing in all the way, so it never gets a chance to rest. And what that does is it creates a very hypertonic, chronically tight diaphragm that's weak, deconditioned, and that's going to keep trying to breathe you. So it starts to get into the whole thing of like, not enough, not enough, got to do more. And then you keep trying to get more in. And again, it's another way the biomechanics, right, keeps that vicious cycle going. So the engagement of the abdominals and this core action that's really supported by the sound and the tethering of the rib cage in, what you're actually doing when you do that is you're putting your diaphragm in a little bit of shavasana. You're giving, it's like nap time. It gets to relax. You're putting it into its resting, its passive resting position. And then when you let go of the abdominals, diaphragm super smart, it will breathe you. It will automatically, if you bring, if you focus on the exhale and the bringing everything in, like that zipping all the way up, high waters, you know, then you're you will be able to breathe with more ease and freedom on the in-breath. It will happen by letting the abdominals go. And you don't have to effort through the neck, through the shoulders. And you will feel like you got that deep breath without making it a big breath. Mm. So there's an effortlessness to it. It's more efficient. Remember, it's lower so you've got more blood exchange down here better perfusion low and slow and then starting to lighten it up you know to put your finger under your nose and just titrate like how much air do you feel brushing across your finger can you make it just a little bit less and you're gonna Scale it back to that place of portion control, not to where it's pushing you over the edge and you start feeling panicky or gaspy, but like, okay, this is less than what I'm used to. This is a little uncomfortable and always an and, and I could do this for three to four to five minutes. It's not my favorite thing, but I could do it. And you start to build your chops up to where you do that on a regular basis consistently and your body will start to acclimate to less breath. It's wow. the only way to get used to breathing less is to practice breathing less. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much for that walkthrough. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting considerations in there. Uh, I did read the chapter, but just to ask you, um, does that engagement of the transverse in that under the rib, does that correlate to the bandhas, like below the belly? Is there a relationship with that? Have you gotten to chapter seven? Yeah, but I just think it's chapter uh, seven is all about yeah. the relationship yeah. between the core muscles and the banda muscles and breathing. The diaphragm is very much like the bandas, which are these locks or seals that involve the pelvic floor muscles and the transversus abdominis, the udiana banda. The stomach lock is is actually the activation of the um, the abdominal muscles, all of them, but primarily the transversus abdominis, um, along with the obliques, a little bit of rectus, but not really, mostly the deeper core muscles. Um, rectus is the most superficial, it's the one that shows, but is, yeah. and not that it's not useful, but it's, 
not the first one I go for when I'm helping people with back pain and things like that. I always go transverse TBA first. Um, so yes, they are very much correlated with, um, and then the neck, the Jalandhara Bandha, which has everything to do with placement of the jaw. Cause you know, if you've got your head forward, got shoulders forward, head forward position, you're going to be definitely likely to be a mouth breather and likely to be a chest breather. They go together and likely to be a rapid breather. Um, getting your shoulders back and your head placed and your jaw aligned to be able to do Jalandhara Bandha, it's not just a structural piece, but it's also a breath retraining piece. So the yogis, again, were very wise because all of these bandhas were in relationship to pranayama. Pranayama was practiced with the bandhas because there was this understanding that the biomechanics support healthy functional breathing. So then that was the other thing that got lost in translation. It was like, oh, bandhas are super hard and you got to have a certain lifestyle and blah, blah, blah. We'll just do breathing without the bandhas. Okay. But so I, I teach engagement of those muscles and sinking those muscles and the connection of those muscles with the breath without going into like the deep bandha practices. People can go there if they want, but I just want people to feel better. You know, in their lives, and I, I say there's very few things that I would say 100% are are going to be positive for 100% of the people. But learning how to be a functional breather and how to engage your core and have a strong core. I've never heard anybody say, you know, I'm just really pissed off that you taught me how to engage my core. <laughs> you know, ever since I became a functional breather, I felt worse. Never has happened, and it won't, because it can only only upside to those two yeah. things and they go together intentionally that's the way we're built that's how we're supposed to be living so you know i know we're getting close to time right now but i think it is important and you did mention before this that it was a crucial piece of the trainings that you do and that is the uh, the eba the um energetic bank account so you know we're talking yeah. a lot about creating functional breathing we're talking about mm. feeling better so this is a pretty big topic in your book, and I'm just curious if we could touch up on that a little bit about okay. what that is and how that fits into this yeah. process of breath retraining. Yeah. So I'll give a little bit of, you know, like teaching from the yoga, from the Upanishads, from the yoga teachings, and then kind of update it and kind of make it a little more accessible to everyday life because it really is. So there's this idea it, from yoga and Ayurveda, Ayurveda being sister science to yoga, that our health and well-being has, has everything to do with our capacity to, um, to function well energetically, our prana. Like prana is a big topic in this world and it has everything to do with like how well our prana, how well we manage our prana and how much, how, let's see, how full our pranic reservoir is really is a, is very indicative to how how healthy we are physically mentally you know how perky we feel when we wake up in the morning versus kind of dragging through our days or needing a ton of naps and that kind of thing so that's a pranic issue and it's it's the baseline for yoga and ayurveda is how to support healthy prana and it turns out prana, pranayama, you might have noticed those words are related. Prana is in the word pranayama. 
And the part of our system that governs prana is called the pranamaya, that particular sheath of our body or part of aspect dimension of our body that governs how we take in and how we put out energy. And it's not just input, output, input, output, which is how most of us live in our life. But there's this understanding that after we take in, like you take a bite of food, ideally we chew it and chew it and chew it and chew it and then we wait. So we digest it before we take in another bite. Now, many of us live our lives by, right? spooning it in, whether it's we're spooning in the next book or the next training or the next whatever, the next, you know, activity, social event, the next movie, right? The next, we're binging on the next episode, like taking in, taking in, taking in without any time for digestion. And that's a problem. It's a pranic problem. And then what's the number one advertisement for on TV? Really and truly. It's not a reptile dysfunction, but we can talk about that too because that has, that's also a pranic issue. But anyway, um, but it's really a you know digest digestive aids, right? Because people mm -hmm. right too fast, too slow, too much going out, nothing going out, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. so elimination, like the putting out. How are we putting out our energy? And if we don't digest and allow, like if, after we digest, some of what we've taken in, if assuming we've taken in healthy food, nourishing food and ideas and thoughts and experiences, we want them to become a part of us, right? We want them to feed and nourish, not just our physical being, but our mind and, right? And, 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 and the, our emotions and our spirituality and our whole way of living in the world. So that also takes time. There's time required for digestion. There's time for assimilation. And then what we put out, we're putting out just the right amount. Like some of it we're holding on to because it's nourishing. Like diarrhea is seriously a problem. People are, they, you know, end up dehydrated and undernourished because like they're taking in stuff, but they can't retain it. They can't assimilate it. So it's not nourishing them. And of course, constipation is huge, huge, huge problem. Not being able to let go of anything, right? So all that crap just gets stuck in there. This is a pranic issue, and as it turns out, according to the yoga teachings, it has everything to do with how we breathe. And the more we are able to put those pauses, like inhale, pause, that's called digestion. Exhale, mm. pause, that's assimilation. And we start to bring more attention to those, and not so much of what can I take in, what can I put out, but like, I just took something in and now I'm just going to pause and just be with that, whether it's a breath or a bite or a conversation or an article. I'm not going to fill my head with something else. I'm just going to be with that and see what part of it really is mine, like really is going to inform my life, transform my life. And what part of it like doesn't really resonate, isn't like I'm not ready for it or it's just not useful for me right now. I'm going to let it go. Right? So can you see that it really, this idea of the energetic bank account is really looking at it on a multidimensional level. What are you taking in in your life and what's the rate of what you're taking in? Like yeah. people say, well, I eat really healthy, but it's like, okay, but how much are you taking in and how fast are you taking time to chew in between your bites? Like, right? 
I read really good things. Okay, but how many books do you have going simultaneously? Mm -hmm. Right? And how much are you really retaining? And what is the intention there? Because people are all stressed out because, like, they haven't finished any of their books. And <laughs> so all that energy is getting expended that way. It's like, what about less? Right? It comes back again. When people start paying attention to their EBA, I would say pretty much across the board, they're like, oh, I need to do less. Hmm. I need to pause more, which means doing less. Right? I need to give myself more time. I need to slow down. This is what I hear over and over again. And of course, all of that, when they're, the pace of life gets slower, the breath gets slower, the mind gets calmer, the mind gets calmer, the breath gets slower, we feel more okay with doing less. And it takes us in the direction of vitality and health and well-being. I know people always say, like, Robin, you're so perky, blah, 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 you know, really and truly. I'm perky because you don't see the times I do very little. Like I do my practices and I stay very quiet. And I, you know, I have off times every day. And I monitor that very well. I monitor my prana. And if I know I'm going to be doing a podcast like this and talking for an hour plus, then I'm going to be doing something before and after to shore that up because I know this is big pranic output right now. I'm talking and I'm talking enthusiastically. I'm probably not functional breathing to the, you know, like closing my mouth between every single phrase and breathing through my nose, right? So I know that afterwards, if I go and I socialize, I'm going to end up really tired by the end of the day. So I'm going to be really quiet, do some of my own breathing practice to recoup and fill my pranic reservoir like I know how to do so that then I can have, you know, keep my energy balanced and even through the course of the day yeah so that's a a little hint of what the eba is about but i guarantee you that if you if you start paying attention to keeping your energetic bank account really full like you're going to feel better but it also is going to require that you make fewer withdrawals mm. that you allow it to accrue interest Right? Like as soon as you put something in, you can't pull it out and yeah. think that you're going to have anything to spare. You're going to always be at the edge. And this is people with chronic fatigue and autoimmune issues. This is a huge topic. Yeah. Huge topic. EPA. Well, it's interesting because this idea of waiting and digesting has a lot to do with how we relate to spaciousness. Mm. I feel like especially here in America, we have a tendency to constantly be doing. We're really focused on the idea of becoming something. And I notice it in spiritual communities a lot. You know, we treat spiritual practice in kind of a materialistic way sometimes where it's where we're kind of looking for the next reward. We're looking for the next thing, oftentimes because we're uncomfortable with space, even though just resting in space would actually be the thing that would allow us to be more present, to be a little bit slower with how we move through life and more intentional. And I just think yes. that that's an interesting thing to really emphasize that. Um, but it's hard, you know, again, it, it's kind of an uncomfortable thing to just sit with where you are and then to accept it because it might not yes. be where you want to be, you know? So like sometimes digestion can kind of slow you down and make you want to just kind of sit and it's like, okay, I have enough. But, you know, we have to really counteract that idea that we never have enough, which is deeply ingrained. Yes. It's not really the truth. 
mm-hmm. but it feels like the truth, right? Yeah. And that's again coming back to this titration of the breath and portion control and um, breathing lighter and less than what you're most comfortable and used to, accustomed to breathing, is a way of practicing this is enough. There's the fiction in the mind of it couldn't possibly be enough. It doesn't feel like it's enough. It's not what I'm used to. And then it's like, okay, but it's what I'm used to actually healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Or is it like more than what I actually need? And am I actually retraining my whole internal mechanism to be in balance? Because that's my experience is that by reducing the breath, when, I mean, I found that I was, it reduced my cravings for sugar and carbs, like just naturally, like I, I dropped 15 pounds in the first, that, those first five months, not because I was trying to lose weight, but because, I mean, which is where I am now, but like it, I just didn't, I felt satiated. I started feeling satiated sooner in all aspects of my life. Like, oh, I don't need a big blah, blah, blah. You know, like I'm okay just being here. I don't need anything more to be happening. My mind got quieter. Everything felt like there was enoughness without a lot of fanfare as I quieted the breath. So it's obviously it's been a profound practice for me and I've um, been really um, blessed with being able to share it with many people who have had the, the same experience or similar. So happy to share it with you and your listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I I am very uh, delighted by this conversation. This is pretty much everything that I want to have on the show. So, uh, you know, we are at that time. So I do want to say thank you so much for coming on and sharing this work. I just think it's so vitally important, no pun intended, to the name of the show and what you have going on. Yes. But really, thank you so much. I know it uh, is a big expenditure of energy. But um, I think it's going to really resonate with people. So Yeah, and fortunately at this time in my life, I have a good savings account in my chronic reservoir. So I can do this without – there's a little bit of a cough. That's my canary. It's like trying to shut mm. up, Robin, right? <laughs> but, but I'm not going into a whole coughing fit, which a couple of years ago, if I talked like this for an hour straight, I would end up in a, in a whole coughing fit afterwards. Oh. So, yeah, okay. so – yeah. So uh, for the people who are really um, vibing with this conversation, where can they find you? And are there online ways that they can interact with you? Oh, yeah. And what do they do next? <clears throat> so, yeah, a lot. So first, you want to hold up the book? Yeah. It might be backwards on the screen, but. No, no, it looks good. So um, Restoring Prana, it's available on my website, which I'll give you in a moment. Maybe you want to, do you want to type it in the chat? Um, also available mm-hmm. on Amazon, so it's EssentialYogaTherapy.com. And um, for those of you who are thinking, I think I have some of these issues and I could use a little yoga therapy on this, I do one-on-ones and I work, at this point I work exclusively on Zoom because I'm working basically with a global community at this point. So um, this work, no matter where you are, I'd be happy to work with you. I work on all time zones. Um, and, uh, And so reach out to me, Robin at EssentialYogaTherapy.com. And then uh, you can look on my website. There's, I, uh, I have 
trainings for those of you who are yoga teachers who want to learn how to teach in this method um, or and or want to transform your own breathing and your understanding of pranayama and become a skilled and educated informed pranayama teacher which i'm a big fan of yoga teachers yoga therapists or even other healthcare practitioners who use the breath like massage therapists i have massage therapists and psychotherapists in my program um, who really are PTs who want to use the breath and want to do it intelligently and with a good eye to functional um, breathing patterns, promoting them. Um, so there's that training program and we have uh, a, the next launch, the next cohort starts in October. So it's not too early to learn about that. And then I also on my store, I have a whole catalog, a library of possible practices that I've done on all different things, including like core engagement and strengthening for the lower back, pelvic floor, all that kind of stuff. But then also lots of stuff on the breath and you can go through and, and pull some of those practices and just kind of jump into um, doing some of those practices on your own if you feel like you want to try it. But there's lots of practices in the book. And then I also have the companion book to that, which is a practice workbook. I don't know if you have that, Brad, but the mm -hmm. Svadhyaya, which means self-awareness, breath journal. And it really gives you like charts and little journaling pages that you can take the practices and fill them in right then and there and start to develop your awareness around the breath and gives you little cues about paying attention to this or that and lots of questions about your EBA for you to reflect on, observe, and start to observe how you're expending energy, how you're taking in, how you're putting out and what's happening in that in those times in between um, with digestion and assimilation and then it progressively goes into stronger practices and the biomechanics and all of that um, as well as explanation of the biochemistry so the breath journal is a really good if you want to get into the practices deeply um, the breath journal is very useful for that as a support mm -hmm. so yeah so get in touch with me I'm always happy and um, uh, look forward to working with anybody that's interested in diving into the pool of, of the breath and joining me here. It's, it's awesome. Highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robin, really from the bottom of my heart. This was so thank fun. Thank you for the invitation. So, of course. Yeah. All right. So we will catch you uh, maybe in another time. All right. Happy to come back anytime. All right, friends, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through till the end. That was Robin Rothenberg. If you want to stay in touch with her platform, consider checking out EssentialYogaTherapy.com. Again, she's got that new cohort starting up October 29th. Her book, Restoring Prana, is phenomenal. I went through it, and uh, I love it. It's everything that I wanted from a book so again thank you so much for listening if you want to support this show head on over to patreon.com slash 21st century vitalism also consider leaving us a review on apple podcast that's a thing people do you can subscribe on youtube like us on facebook follow us on instagram digital age you know what to do we're all living in it so again thank you so much we will see you on the next episode with another amazing guest